uh, yeah, we'll be finding Acts 17. And, and our story picks up today in Athens, Greece. Has anybody, or maybe I should say, how many of you in here have been to Athens, Greece? One, two, is that it? Three, four, wow, okay, five, wow. Um, I haven't been, but I want to go. Uh, it, it sounds like a really impressive place. Let's um, let's go to Acts chapter 17 now in verse 16, where we're going to p- pick up the Apostle Paul in Athens. So we're going to read just a couple of verses here or through verse 21. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. And Luke adds parenthetically, now all the Athenians and strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Well, Paul got to Athens the way that Paul got a lot of places. A mob drove him out of the city. First out of Thessalonica, up about 250 miles north of there, and then to Berea. And the Jews that he had talked to and reasoned with in the synagogue and preached Christ to um, followed him the 70, 80 some miles between Thessalonica and started a riot there. And the brothers said, you know what, Paul, this is not working out good. So they took him to the coast, put him on a ship 250 miles south to Athens. And our story picks up, it says, while he was in Athens. So he was actually waiting for uh, Silas and Timothy to come join him in Athens. but So this is kind of a while he's waiting. Paul is in Athens waiting for them to come. And somebody said, I think I accurately said this, that, uh, that, that life is what happens when you're on your way to do something else. And so here was Paul in Athens waiting for them to come. And while he was in Athens... It said that the, the Paul saw a city full of idols. Full of idols. Uh, best guesses uh, that at that time, uh, the population of Athens was about 10,000. And one historian that knows about such things speculated that there were probably 30,000 idols in the city of Athens. A man uh, by the name of Pausanias, who wrote ten books of Jewish, uh, excuse me, of Greek history about that time, uh, remarked that it was probably easier to find a god in Athens than it was a man. And Pausanias also noted, in addition to all of the statues, the multitudes of statues of gods, that there was not only those, but there was altars to ideas like generosity and knowledge 
And not only that, there was actually shrines to emotions like like sorrow and shame. And he even noted that there was a that there was an idol dedicated to rumor. Seemed like they had all the bases covered. But when Paul saw this, even though he was in Athens, this this great city of of uh, it was probably the pinnacle of culture and civilization in the world at the time. I don't think there's any question about that. But that's not what Paul saw. It says that he saw a city full of idols and that his spirit was provoked. Deep provocation, a a visceral, you might call it a gut reaction that Paul had that tore at his heart. And so what did he do? He went to the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. He went out to the marketplace and reasoned with anybody that came around. His response to the provocation was, look, there are these idols. There are this, this is a place where God is not being worshipped, where the true God uh, is, is being neglected in favor of idol worship. And that toward his heart. And you know, I want to tell you right off the bat, that convicts me terribly. Because I walk around in my culture, which we're going to discover is very much soon the same, and, and, and my spirit is not provoked that way. And I wonder why. Is it because I've become so absorbed in the culture? I've become so whitewashed by the culture that I don't see what he saw and my spirit is not moved? Is it because I don't believe what Paul believed? Really, I don't believe it? That there was a city not only full of idols, but full of idolaters. Well, we read that... um, in the marketplace, that that's where Paul encountered the, the philosophers. And they brought him up to the Areopagus, which is a, which is a hill, the highest place in the city. And it's a, actually kind of a, a big rock, I'm told. Maybe you people from, uh, uh, that have actually been there can, can clear me up on that. But it was the Areopagus. It was the highest place in the city, which was dedicated to the, the god, the patron god of that city, Ares. So, and Pegasus is hill, so Ares, Pegasus, the Areopagus, the hill of Ares, the highest place in the city. And uh, sometimes you hear it referred to as Mars Hill, and that's simply because Mars is the Roman name for the god Ares. So sometimes you hear it referred to as Mars Hill, and, and sometimes this is referred to as a, as a sermon that Paul had on Mars Hill. But it was the exact same spot, right next to this giant Parthenon, which was the biggest shrine in all of, all of Greece dedicated to Athena, the temple of Athena. It was this very spot that 400, 500 years before that, Socrates and his student Plato and Plato's student Aristotle had lectured. The great philosophical minds of the time. This is where Paul is. And even though he was in this, this center of incredible art and the, and the only democracy at the time in the world, Paul was not wowed by all of that. He saw behind all of that to the, to the idolatry behind it. And as impressive as Athens was, we have to note here that Athens was in really serious decline from its glory days. 
the ultimate failure of Athens philosophers, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, they had failed to coalesce a, a, a meaning, a philosophy that would give meaning to life. I mean, with all of their great thinking and all of their great intellect and all of those things, they had been unable to make life make sense. And so, um, the whole culture had been kind of thrown into a skepticism and the Athenians were kind of like, well, okay, well, since there's really no meaning and no purpose, let's just deal with life day to day the best we can because that's what their philosophers had come to. There's no clear path. And by the way, parenthetically about uh, philosophers, somebody said that if you could line up all the philosophers in the world head to toe, it would be a good idea to just leave them that way. <laughs> but, but out of this hopelessness, there arose two very skeptical philosophies. You see, the Epicureans, which is one that we mentioned, and I, I know this is an oversimplification, but, but they believed in chance. Just random chance. And they pursued pleasure. Now, the Stoics, on the other hand, were the fatalists of the day. And they believed that you should just kind of endure pain to just get through life. Two very hopeless, two very skeptical views of life and meaning. As a matter of fact, you could say the Stoics were the kind of grin and bear it people, only don't grin. And the Epics were kind of the Hakuna Matata crowd. I, I, I grant that that is an oversimplification, but, but we need to realize that these, these were both very highly intellectual philosophies, but they were theologically bankrupt. And now here's Paul at the high point, at the zenith of world science and art and culture, and he's in the hot seat before these guys, before the intellectual elite of the day. So let's look down in our Bibles again and find verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Now, you might be thinking, and I wouldn't blame you if you did, what do thousands of idols in Athens, Greece, in the first century, in a discussion uh, about Paul, uh, about an unknown God, what does that have to do with me? In 21st century, Central Oregon. And that's a good question. And to, to kind of help bridge the gap, uh, I, I looked and, and found a book, by a guy called Daniel Dank, and I love the name of this book, and the name of the book is called Why Good Arguments Fail. That's, that's, a, that's a great title for a book, Why Good Arguments Fail. And um, what it is, is it's, it's his best guess of what this same speech that we're going to hear from Paul might have sounded like given by a modern-day Paul on a university campus. And here it goes. Men and women of the university, 
I see that you are in every way very religious. As I walked around the university, I observed carefully your objects of worship. I saw your altar called the stadium, where many of you worship the sports deity. I saw the science building where many place their faith for the salvation of mankind. I found an altar in the fine arts where artistic expression and performance seem to reign supreme without subservience to any greater power. I walked through your residence halls and observed your sex goddess posters and beer can pyramids. Yet, as I walked with some of you and saw the emptiness in your eyes and sensed the aching in your hearts, I perceived that in your heart is yet another altar, an altar to the unknown God, who you suspect may be there. You have a sense that there is something more than these humanistic and self-indulgent gods. What you're longing for as unknown, I want to declare to you. What are idols? They sound weird. I'll bet you didn't drive by any statues on your way here today. Probably no shrines either. Maybe not even any altars. But an idol is anything or things or persons or beliefs that we devote ourselves to. Here's the big deal about idols. In hopes that it will ultimately satisfy us and make us secure. You say, well, how would I see an idol? How would I know an idol when I saw one? Usually, it's the places where we spend most of our time and money and devotion. Those are good barometers. It can be an idol of self pursuing pleasure or comfort or a self-expression or a will. It can be Muhammad. It can be, it can be an idea like the Buddhist transcendent, uh, 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 transcendent uh, mindset of the state of nirvana. It can be a tree stump. It can be tradition. It can be a career or wealth or power. You name it. And man can make an idol out of it. Another author said writing about this that man's greatest crime, man's greatest crime is his religions. You see, man is innately religious. Anthropologists, people that study people uh, and people groups, have been traveling the globe for years, for centuries, trying to discover what it is that makes man, man. And for a long time, the thing that they said makes man, man is homo erectus. Man, the upright walker. And then, maybe some of you remember this from, I don't know, eighth grade social studies came Homo sapiens. Man, the thinker. Well, a Romanian philosopher that worked at the University of Chicago in the early part of the 20th century reclassified man from his studies as homo religiosus, man the religious. And though in, in, in all the cultures he studied, uh, there was all kinds of different idols. There was rivers, there's mountains, there's bees, there's cows, there's planets, there's wars. And though 
Every culture embraces a different God or God differently. The one thing that he found in all the culture that was so peculiar was he said, every culture envisions a main God that is by nature superior to the rest, but he is unknown. That's the God that's just over the mountain, that's just down the river, around the bend, that's just beyond the stars that would tie it all together. That if we could know this God, He would really make all of this make sense. And this God arises out of the acknowledged insufficiency of our idols. I mean, in other words, if the idols were getting it, we wouldn't be looking for them. But this uh, anthropologist, I can't think of his name, I'm sorry. It's a Romanian name, it'd be hard. He noticed that it arises because our idols are insufficient. But that God is universally assumed to be detached and ultimately unknowable. But that's the God that Paul is proclaiming. And that's the God that we proclaim in our culture. So how did Paul proclaim this God in this idol wasteland to the Athenians who were obviously devoted idols. They had no knowledge of, of God, no knowledge of the Bible whatsoever. And I think it's good for us to pay attention here because this is where we often find ourselves in the same wasteland. I'd like to talk about evangelism in the wasteland. Some essentials. Now let's look back in our Bibles again in verse 24. So this is what Paul said. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all, to all people life, breath, and all things. And he made known from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Even as some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Evangelism in the wasteland. You know, many people have commented about what a respectful, um, congenial, uh, entrance into this uh, discussion that Paul makes. It's, it's masterful. He comes in and he says, uh, you know, I noticed, you know, when I was looking at your gods, that you guys are very religious. You're very religious. He didn't come in and say, okay, look, all these idols got to go. He didn't put on his make Athens great again hat and say, in order to do that, all of these idols have got to go now. He started with respect and started with a congenial offering to them. 
But where did he start? He just proclaims the truth about God. It was a God-centered message. He didn't start with felt needs. He didn't, he didn't strive. Paul didn't come in to scratch their philosophical itch. He came in and proclaimed, <clears throat> excuse me, the truth about God. It was a God-centered message. Because Paul understood, if they didn't understand, that the biggest need that they had was not something that they felt, but their biggest need was that they were separated from God and worshiping idols instead of the one true God. So where does he start? He starts where God starts, with creation. In the beginning, God. He says that God is creator of heaven and earth, which means that he's Lord. It says that he gives life and breath to all, which means that he is the stainer, sustainer and we are dependent. He, he says that God determines the boundaries and, nation, uh, and times of nations and peoples. So God is the sovereign determiner of peoples and nations. Because you see, the Greeks, like the Americans, thought, think or thought that they are kind of a people set apart, a race set apart. And um, Paul is here saying, you know, God is the one that causes civilizations to come up and to go down. Just like the Greek civilization did, just like the Roman civilization did, and undoubtedly, just like this one will, God determines those things. He is the sovereign determiner. But the other thing that he moves to quickly is that God desires relationship with him. That, that God is the creator of all that is and the sustainer and the, and the sovereign who is controlling the affairs of men that he seeks, that he does all this, that men may seek him, may grope for him and find him. God is a God of relationship. God is... Uh, I think the biggest lie in the world, right, is that God wants something from us. God wants you to give him something. That God is a taker. And Paul's saying, no. God doesn't need anything from you. God wants a relationship with you. And that's the difference between religion, that's the difference between Christianity and any, any other religion. God, has, God wants to give himself to you. And he gives meaning to our lives. Later on down, he says, it says, in him we live and move and have our being. Now, this statement has huge implications for the epics and the Stoics. And, and, and R.C. Sproul has said that what follows in this verse is the most profound statement of ultimate truth in Scripture. And I went, wow, I better check that out. You see, the Greek philosophers, including Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, and Epimenides before him, they had tried in vain, in vain, over the, over the centuries to discover the three great mysteries of life, motion, and being. Life, motion, and being. Now, I'm no philosophy expert, and I don't want to come off as one, but I, but I thought this was very interesting, and so I, I did do a little study on it. I'd like to, to, to tell you what that yielded. And, and, and I would appreciate if you put your kind of thinking caps on and follow closely about these three mysteries of the ancient world that nobody could solve, nobody could make come together in one thing that meant anything. 
Because modern philosophies, the honest ones, are still trying to answer these uh, same questions. The Greeks poured into this, their philosophical great minds, because they didn't have social media, Meghan Markle and the Kardashians to occupy their attention. So they asked these questions. Life, where does it come from? What's its meaning? Well, in schools, our children are being told that life is a cosmic accident. And that it's meaningless. That the whole thing arose out of nothing and it's going to nothing. It came from meaninglessness and it's going to meaninglessness. But somehow, in the middle, people are supposed to have some dignity. I'm sorry, folks, that doesn't make any sense. What what does death signify? And does it matter? Kids are told that they come from nothing and go to nothing, and yet we're surprised when they take weapons to school and shoot each other. We're shocked. A tsunami kills 3,000 people. Does it matter? Where does human dignity come from? Paul says, in Him we live and move and have our being. And our dignity comes from God. He has given man dignity by stamping His image on every person. Therefore, all dignity and worth derive from God Himself. Life, motion, and being. So motion. That's kind of a weird one, right? Things are in motion. The planets are in motion. The weather's in motion. Rivers are in motion. How did it start? The Greeks asked. Well, there's infinite regression, they decided, is impossible. Well, let me unpack that for you um, as best I can. In other words, this chain of falling dominoes of change had to start somewhere. And they... they, they, um, they looked at it like this. They said that there has to be an unmoved mover. Paul says, in him we live and move. We move in him. That God himself is the explanation for motion. That God not only initiates motion, he directs it for his purposes. We're transitory and he's unchanging. The change we observe around us finds its cause and meaning in God. Life, motion, and being. Being. Where does being come from? Well, the Greeks, they just, uh, they had kind of a theory, kind of like we do, they, that it says, in the light, suddenly, the light produced Gaia, Mother Earth, and Uranus, the God of the sky. Just kind of like that. Just out of Nothing. That was their official idea of creation. Nobody believed it, but that was the official idea. And schools today teach that all matter was compressed into tiny subatomic particles, uh, very, very, uh, very small. At some time, someplace in a galaxy far, far away, a long, long time ago. And then suddenly, for some unexplained reason, blammo! Things just came into being. Now we go, okay. They didn't think about it that way. Somebody said, you know, out of nothing comes nothing. And even 
Billy Preston, one of my favorite musicians from back in the 60s, who actually used to play keyboard for the Beatles. Not many people know that. But he wrote a song that kind of sums it up. He says, nothing from nothing leaves nothing. Right? How can being, if we are, if you are, if I am, come out of non-being? It can't. If something is, something always was, God's disclosure. I love this. When he's revealing himself to Moses, Moses says, what's your name? What shall I call you? I am. That's being. And that our being, and the, 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 everything surrounding our being, those three big questions are all solved in one statement about God. In Him, we live and move and have our being. Now, verse 30. It says, Being then children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold, silver, stone, and an image formed by the art or thought of man. Man has deliberately turned from the self-revelation of God to idols. And we're each responsible for that rejection. Romans 1, 19, 20 makes it even clearer. It says men, speaking of men, it says, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So they are without excuse. God says that he's put the knowledge of men in men. And he also says that he's put it out there in the heavens, in creation that's all around. The Bible doesn't argue the existence of God. It assumes it right from the get-go. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Paul offers, well, let me put it like this. Do you know how much proof Paul offers these people that don't know anything about God and don't know anything about the Bible? you know how much proof he offers them in this argument? None. Because God says his existence is clearly seen by men so that they are without excuse. So I want to ask, you know, and you've probably heard this argument back and forth. Why do we keep trying to prove God's existence to atheists who God says don't exist? When we get all wrapped up around the axle in, in, in philosophical discourse about, you know, the uh, natural proofs and all these kinds of things, which God says they already know. When we get all wrapped up in those kinds of, of arguments, we don't get to the part of delivering the message of God's desire for relationship with them and their responsibility to repent. Well, Paul doesn't make that mistake. He believes Romans 1, 19 and 20. It's that men reject what they know about God. It's not a knowledge problem. It's a heart problem. And he also says God is commanding all men everywhere to repent. The good news is that God has overlooked all of this deliberate rejection of him 
And he's not anxious to judge. He wants to see men delivered from judgment. It says that he's commanding all to repent. You know, at sermons, oftentimes you'll hear at the end what we call the invitation, right? That's a request. God is not issuing an invitation. God is issuing a subpoena. You say, well, that's not very loving. Let me ask you, if you as a parent were sitting on your porch and you saw your child playing in the street and you see a bus coming, do you try to coax your child out of the street? You say, hey, Junior, come on now, let's, let's reason. No loving parent would do that. And God is declaring, is commanding all men everywhere to repent having overlooked the previous times of ignorance because there's a reckoning in verse 31. There's a day, a fixed day, where God will judge the world because idols will not save. The date, the man, the criteria are all set. The man is Christ Jesus because man's urgent problem is that he is under impending judgment. And, you know, we have almost entirely backed off about communicating about God's judgment. I don't know if it's because we're embarrassed about it or apologetic, but Paul's not. We talk about the cross, and we should. That should be the center of everything that comes out of here. But just as surely as God judged sin on the cross, He will judge unrepentant sin ultimately. Because you see, apart from sin and judgment, men have no need of Jesus. Jesus is a bridge without a chasm, He's a bridge without a river. He's a Savior with no one to save. Nothing to save us from apart from the preaching and exposition of God's judgment on man's sin. He mentions also the proof. The proof, it says, He's fixed today which will judge the world in righteousness through a man through whom he is appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. If you look all the way back, here, here Paul is talking to the, to the philosophers, the, the intellectuals of the day, the, the big thinkers, the, uh, you know, the cognoscenti. And if you look all the way back to the synagogue in the marketplace, Paul was preaching the same thing. He said, it says up in verse 18 that he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And here we find Paul preaching Jesus in the resurrection. His path of getting there was a little different, but that was the goal. Because resurrection of Jesus and his death for our sins is tantamount, is essential to our faith. Now, I, I don't know. The writer, the commentators don't know. 
But we suspect what we have here in, in Paul's sermon are kind of excerpts from his preaching because it's it's hard for to imagine Paul preaching the resurrection apart from the cross. And it's, and it's hard to imagine him preaching the cross apart from sin. Faith in the resurrection is essential to salvation. Romans 10.9 That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, maybe as we've been talking through this today, you've recognized a familiar shrine of your own or an idol and you're kind of thinking, hey, that's me he's talking about and maybe maybe it's been the altar of pleasure or the altar of self it might even be the altar of shame that you've been hung up with for a long time and for the first time you've heard that God wants relationship with you and that God has provided a way for relationship for you he's overlooked the times of ignorance in the past and is commanding all men everywhere to be saved. And that there's forgiveness through Jesus. Once you forsake these idols for Jesus, who satisfies our souls completely and gives us eternal security. He is the one, the true, the living God. Just a couple of things real quickly about in the wasteland. Our our message needs to get to Jesus and His resurrection. However it starts on whatever path, that's where it needs to go because Jesus is our hope. Our task is not to prove the existence of God, but to proclaim the truth about God as Creator, Sustainer, and Sovereign. That He wants relationship and that He commands repentance. I think it's worthwhile too to notice that at the end there, it says that when they heard of this resurrection, some began to snare and others said, we shall hear from you again. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him, believing and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris. Sometimes evangelizing in the wasteland brings underwhelming results. Paul delivered the message and he went out. He wasn't thrown out this time or driven out, but he was free to go because he had proclaimed the gospel and the message. But it's obvious that most, most all, refused to believe and went on their way. Some said, some just, yeah, whatever, Paul. Resurrection, yeah, right. Those are familiar responses to us. But there were some who believed. We need to remember that Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. And with that crowd in particular, Paul would write to the Corinthians church that there was not many wise and not many noble among you. But some joined him. The majority didn't. When we're compelled by the love of Christ and distress 
over condemned idolaters will be faithful and leave the results to God. It seems like Paul didn't make a discernible dent or a difference in Athens, but there was Dionysius and Damaris and a few others. In a city full of idols. Well, a young boy was walking along a beach where the tide had receded. And for miles, the tide, the high tide, had deposited millions of starfish. And there they were on the beach, out of the reach of the ocean. And they were going to die. This little boy was walking along and picking them up. Throw him in, walk a little further. I mean, there were millions of them. A man was approaching from the other direction and saw the young boy picking up these starfish and throwing them in one at a time. The man said, Son, look at this. You can't make a difference. Little boy picked up a starfish, threw it in, and he said, Made a difference to that one. Picked up another one. Made a difference to that one. It's faithfulness in our proclaiming the message, the truth about God in a world full of idols. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this story. We thank you, Lord, for the truth that it reveals about you, Lord, that even though we have turned and gone our own way, as as idolaters, Lord, that you've overlooked that. Overlooked it. And in grace, Lord, called us to repentance and furnished proof, Lord, for us in Jesus Christ and that in you, Lord, we find life and meaning. And so, Lord, we are so grateful for that today. We pray, Lord, that you would expunge the idolatry out of our hearts. And for any, Lord, here that for the first time have heard about a God who loves them, wants relationships with them, before whom they stand condemned apart from the work of Jesus Christ, I pray, Lord, that they would answer that command today to repent and be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.